Hello and welcome to Game Devastation. I'm your host, Stephen Frost. Today I'm talking with Adam Tierney. Adam, uh, who are you and what the hell do you do? Um, I should know this. I, I should have an answer for this. Uh, I'm a video game developer in Los Angeles. Um, I occasionally do some, you know, hobby or side stuff, but I'm mostly known for being a designer director at uh, Way Forward, where I worked with you previously. Indeed. Uh, and what is uh, what do you actually like? What is the in the title director mean? What do you do as a director? Um, I guess, you know, from what I've heard, that really kind of varies depending on the company. Um, you have some developers that are, you know, much more producer driven, where kind of the person doing the schedules and the budgets is on top. Um, Way Forward is a little bit flipped, where they kind of, there's a partnership, but often it's kind of like creatively driven. So the director is kind of the person who takes everything and basically builds the game experience, very similar to a, a movie director. Um, usually that person at WayForward is also the designer, not always, but uh, basically the designer will write the GDD, which is the equivalent of a screenplay, and it kind of lists everything that will be in a game, all the gameplay, all the characters, all the weapons, like basically every system. And then um, the director is the one who, over the course of a year or so, uh, actually does all the work to make sure that game comes to reality. Okay, and so what games have you uh, been known for at WayForward? Um, let's see. First one, I came in doing, uh, I was Matt Boson's assistant director on uh, Sigma Star Saga, which was a cool little original GBA property. Um, <laughs> and apologies, I've got my daughter in here, so you probably hear some baby giggling every now and then. Yeah, that's um, uh, totally okay, by the way. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, so, uh, after that, uh, the first thing I directed was an X-Men game. And then we've, uh, other things I've directed are, um, Justice League Heroes, which was a Flash game. Uh, I did Batman Brave and the Bold, which you worked on. Um, I did a Silent Hill game. I just recently directed, uh, Till Morning's Light, a game for Amazon Game Studios. And that's coming out very soon. Um, what else have I done? I've done a Barbie game at one point. It, it's, it's kind of all a blur but i've been at way forward a little bit over a decade at this point okay that's so that's like a long time in the game industry uh typically people kind of go from one area to another and, and keep going um what do you think kind of attributes to the success of way forward because way forward's been around even longer than that as far as i've recall the company just celebrated their their 25th um anniversary which is pretty crazy for a little independent studio we've never been you know, owned by a larger publisher. It's always been completely independent, like from, you know, for the past 25 years, Voldy Way has been the sole owner of the company, which is kind of, you know, unheard of in, in this industry. But I think one of the things I've, I've done some work for other companies and way forward more than any of the other places I've worked for is uh, really kind of, we don't um, over committee the way we um, do a lot of production. Like it's a very kind of led by auteurs and led by like, you know, individual visions and stuff like that. And I think that allows for the games to be a little more eccentric, a little more unusual, and uh, don't shave off all the edges. So I think with WayForward Games, you get products that feel individual and a little bit more unique than you see with a lot of uh, developers where it's kind of more a committee process and it feels a little more kind of, you know, all the interesting edges are worn off. Right. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed actually when, when I was there was that... Um, you know, I've, I've worked at other places where the studio heads get a little bit more involved with things and get, you know, more interested. And I think for the most part, Voldy seemed kind of hands off for the most part. Was Do you think that's the case or do you think it was more he gets involved in some things or did I just not notice that correctly? No, I would I would kind of characterize that across management. I mean, even with Matt, uh, Matt Boson, he's our creative director and he created um, Shantae and Switch Force and a lot of our kind of more notable properties. Um, yeah, I've worked for some places just doing freelance and, and uh, you know, before Way Forward, I worked in the industry for maybe about two years or so. And a lot of places are, like you said, it's very systematically driven from the top down. So it's kind of like, you know, the every game to a degree is kind of broadly directed by you know the top and then as you go down people have less and less of a voice and less and less control and at way forward it's not really like that i mean the you know you have management and you have creative director um boson uh involved with everything and giving feedback and everything but really there's a lot of individual control and individual creativity 
with the teams and with the directors and with the designers. And so, yeah, that's one of the things that uh, I think it also like, that's one of the reasons why if you look at the catalog of way forward games, they're really kind of all over the place. You have stuff where <clears throat> it's very cheerful and, um, you know, very anime-ish and cutesy like Shantae. And then you have stuff that is much darker, like, you know, we did a Silent Hill game, we did a Blood Raid game, you have stuff that um, is completely crazy 80s style, like Double Dragon Neon. So it really kind of all comes down to, you know, the individual directors and lead programmers that you have on the game. There's there's a very broad kind of possibility of styles, uh, at an, you know, for any individual WayForward product. So mostly WayForward is known for their side-scroller stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there are some things that are, that are kind of different, like uh, I think lit was different it was more of the uh diablo kind of view same with uh silent hill um i wanted to talk though specifically about side scrollers and what do you think the three critical things are when you're going to start making a side scroller game what are the what are the top three things you always kind of think about when you're developing those kinds of things Hmm. all right um let me think well I mean, the main thing, the thing that we always make sure we nail immediately right off the bat, and because you, you really have to build everything around it, is uh, the mobility and the jump physics. So, I mean, very early on, you need to figure out how fast is my character moving, um, when they're jumping, how high can they jump, how does their jump factor into their mobility, are you able to wiggle in the air, do you have like a canned, you know, ghouls and ghosts kind of jump, like all of that is is really critical to nail down in a platformer. Um, I'd say that's one. Another one is uh, obviously kind of figuring out what your block size is and what your player size is. So if you are going with, you know, a much larger character on screen, that's fine. But that really kind of limits um, how much of the visible area you can see, how wide you can go on your puzzles and your platforms and your pits and stuff like that. But, you know, if you're doing something that's very character driven, then that could have an advantage too. Um, Let's see, those two. And then... I think what would be another really notable third one. Yeah, there's there's a lot. Those are the two main ones that kind of spring to mind. Is yeah, getting your physics, getting your jump, getting your mobility, um, and then also just you know we'll usually do just gray boxing and just kind of get a feel for the f- communication of of the level design, like how you are, you know, like with doorways and with platforms and with pits, like how we are showcasing them. Um, if you're able to reliably see down uh, to the bottom of pits, how doors are making sure they're consistent because you don't want to have inconsistencies. So um, like that, I know that was something that, that Matt's very big on and Shantae is making sure that when you're hitting doors, the doors are always kind of like hitting you at the same you know screen level whenever possible, just because getting players into that rhythm of consistency will make it easier for them to recognize stuff. The last thing you want is for a player to you know, be confused and see a door that's halfway off screen or see a pit that leads down to nothing and there's no indication whether or not it's a death pit or whether you're supposed to go down there. So um, that's another really critical thing is really making sure that that players are understanding all the visual cues of your level design and they feel confident about where they can go and, and they're never just like caught off guard by like, you know, a cheap death. Right. Yeah, that's always the hard part about uh, like downward levels when you have to like yeah. make something. Oh man, like if 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 you've been communicating the entire time that if you fall into a pit, you die yep. and that you need to go down, then it's like, well, it kind of confuses the player on those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask you guys as well, cause you guys have also made a lot of remakes and stuff like that. And, uh, I wanted to ask what you guys take into consideration when you are making to a, a sequel to a series, or if you're making an homage or what do you take into consideration when you guys are working on a property that has already existed um, I, I think a lot of it comes down to the, uh, again, the individual director. So, I mean, you take something like, um, you know, uh, when Sean did his double dragon neon, he wanted to make it very hyper eighties and, you know, it has a very kind of like, um, big trouble and little China sort of feel to it. Cause I think that was kind of the feel and aesthetic that he wanted to pull from there. Um, you know, I love double dragon too. If I would have done that game, I, uh, I probably would have done something more, straightforward and dramatic less kind of tongue-in-cheek um but really the the kind of retro remake thing it really boils down to just examining everything that's available from the original property and then thinking what is worth carrying over um you know we remade boy in his blah we made uh, made a new double dragon made a new blood rain um remade ducktales with the remastered one 
whether or not you're doing something that is just taking the brand and advancing it with a new game, or if you're remaking an old game, in both situations, we really just kind of play the hell out of the original ones, look at all the source material, look at all the character designs, and um, try not to be too beholden to anything, you know, just for nostalgia's sake. I mean, obviously, you don't want to, you know, be haphazard and just change characters' names or change, you know, character designs for the hell of it. Um, because nostalgia is good. Nostalgia is great whenever it's worth keeping, but you never want to cling to something that will make a bad gameplay experience. So, um, like that's something I know that, you know, like for DuckTales, you know, that was one where it was more of like a very direct remake. And so they kept a lot of the original level design, but I know one of the areas they deviated was the, uh, uh, Minecraft stuff or minecart stuff. Um, where they just created like all new tracks and all new uh, kind of layouts for those things because it needed something that was very exciting and you know more ambitious than um, than what was in the original game. Um, so that's that's the whenever I get an assignment that's based on something, whether even if it's not um, a remake, even if it's just based on an existing brand, like if I do an X Men game or a Batman game, those aren't necessarily you know retooling an ex- a previous game with that brand, but I'll still dive into looking at what are all the weapons, what are all the characters, what are all the villains. And um, that's kind of where it starts is just getting this massive ingredients list that you can pull from and then slowly kind of narrowing it down and saying, well, we could do this boss and we could do a stage like this and we could do enemies like this. Um, But yeah, that's always the most fun. One of the most fun parts is really that like, you know, first month or two of development, um, usually around that time at a way forward project, like the programmers are getting the initial tech running and maybe getting like a demo of a character moving around on screen. And since there's not that much active content production at that point, it gives the designer director some time to really think about what they want to do and what they want to focus on in terms of characters and gameplay and uh, and what they want to carry over from from the existing brand and previous games. Well, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit, too. You were bringing up the comic book stuff. Um, historically, I'd say prior to maybe like about five or six years ago, a lot of comic book games were really not that good. Um, yeah. And... Uh, I was I was going to ask what you guys do differently because you guys have gotten pretty good reviews on on your superhero games. So what do you think it is that that you guys have done differently that maybe a lot of other publishers didn't really take into consideration? I mean, yeah, I've I mean personally, I've I've done you know I think most of the the superhero games that WayForward's done since I've been here. Um, and for me, like being a being a comic book fan and just like you know growing up on tons of DC and Marvel, um, it was really just trying to pull in as much lore and characters and homage as possible, not to like a kind of gross fan service kind of way. But I think that, you know, if somebody is buying like uh, a Batman game or a flash game, they might be like the ultimate Batman fan or the ultimate flash fan. And so the more that you can, uh, you know, play to what their expectations are, um, not to the detriment of the game. Again, you know, ultimately it all has to be good gameplay fundamentals and boss fundamentals and stuff. But um, the more things that you can pull in that a fan of that brand would hope for, then it'll just make that connection much greater with them. Like a perfect example, when we did the Flash game, which was uh, Flash the Superhero, um, that was the second game I directed. And uh, the first thing I did before we even started production on it is I basically read through all the Jeff Johns uh, comics, and I think he'd written him for like five years, something like five years straight. So I just read through all of those all at once, and I mean, the writing was phenomenal. The other thing that was fantastic about Jeff Johns' run is that it really was written like as a run. So he would like set up elements at the beginning, and then there would be payoff like you know four and a half years later. So it was really this less gorgeous run, and you know with the rogues, everything that's that's being pulled into the TV show right now. And one of the things that I really loved uh, was um, the idea of the uh, the Black Flash of the death being something that because the speedsters move so quickly, they can actually see death coming for them. It's a personified character, um, and so we decided to put that into the game, and we didn't really like put it in very prominently it's very easter eggy but uh at any point in the time in the game you can kind of freeze time and go beat up guys and they're just kind of like you know moving in super slow motion or you can just zip around quickly so you can kind of use your speed energy either way but if you uh when you lose all your energy your uh, flash kind of does a little like you know wobbly back step as he's dying and the reason we did that it's like an animation that's like three or four seconds long is because if you go into speed time during that you'll actually see this black flash appear out of smoke and then slowly lurch towards your character and if you can get over there and beat the crap out of him before 
your speed force time runs out, which depends on how much you have in your meter, then you got back something like 10% of your energy and you would get another chance at, at life. And it's not a huge advantage because you only get 10% energy and your uh, flash speed meter is drained at that point. So, I mean, you're kind of still kind of on the ropes, but yes, but putting in something like that, didn't really bring that much attention to it. It was something that um, I don't think we put any tutorial on it or anything like that. And players just found it as they went along. But I know that, you know, for people that are diehard flash fans, that's something that would just really blow them away because it's so, it's such an intimate connection with the comic. So um, same thing with Batman. I mean, I, I can't even get into like how much, um, you know, lore stuff and, and tie-ins we did in the Batman game. Um, but that's always one of the most fun things I think. And I think that's one of the things that to your original question kind of helps us out is that, maybe WayForward's uh, brand games and especially like our superhero stuff feel a little more knowledgeable about the source material and a little more, more uh, reverent to it um, because we take all that into consideration. We try and put it into the game as opposed to like, you know, historically talking like pre-Arkham. Uh, I don't think a lot of the developers did that much. You would see like lots of characters and levels and bosses that really had very little to do with uh with the spirit of how things were in the original brand. And, you know, now post Arkham, now I think that's changing. Now you're just seeing like tons of lore and tons of like, you know, diving into the source material and fan service and things like that. All right. So this, this one is a little bit more hypothetical. Sure. Um, Superman has yeah. ne never had a good game. Uh-huh. <laughs> what, what would you do differently to make an awesome Superman game? Because I've well, got loads of theories on this, but I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Well, so I will I will say, I will throw out a, a counter to that. I will say that I don't think that the Superman, uh, I think it was Superman Returns on 360, I don't think it was a great game, but I thought it had phenomenal flying. So it's actually, in a way, it's one of my favorite superhero games, and, and I think it was made by the Madden guys, actually, which was weird, because like, you look at their their you know list of games and it's just like a bazillion maddens and then they just hopped off to do superman and they just went back to maddens i think um it's not a great game doesn't have great enemies doesn't have great bosses but i own it and i boot it up every now and then just because flying around feels 1000 percent like perfect so it's just like you know the way that you're you know breaking the speed of sound and the way that you're flying up and uh, into the sky and the city below you is like swapping out models the lod style and everything um so i would say like they're I, there probably hasn't been like a, a great Superman game, but there is that game that has some great aspects to it. Um, sure. uh, as far as, uh, I don't know what I would do. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, I'm more of a Batman game, uh, guy as far as the comics and stuff. I'm not super knowledgeable about Superman. So um, uh, let's see. I definitely, you know, I have more experience with, with Batman stuff. I guess um, the main thing I would do is, just try to, as often as possible, let the players what do what they want to do with Superman. I mean, that was kind of the, you know, ridiculousness of, of Superman 64 and stuff like that. It's like, oh, you have all the powers of Superman now. Fly through these rings or hop in this weird little, like, go-kart, like, monorail thing on the ground. Like, it was just, you know, they did the wrong things. Um, so that's the main thing I would do is just really boil down what the character is in terms of physicality and abilities and try to do that as much as possible and then try and hook as much gameplay into it as possible too because that's another problem you see in some superhero games where you know batman or superman or green uh, lantern will have like all their amazing abilities and there's no point to it it's like well i can do these 50 things but i could do any of these 50 things so that's probably what i would do is i would look at you know the way that he flies and all his new abilities and then really try and build satisfying uh, intuitive levels and bosses around those yeah, because I feel like the hard part with Superman, even writing for Superman, yeah. uh, would be super difficult because the dude has done just monumental things. And the only people that can really cause a threat to him are usually people from outside of this solar system and have, you know, an amazing amount of power or are gods or, you know, whatever. So making a game around that where typically you, you beat up thugs and then you beat up one bad guy is probably a little bit difficult for a Superman sort of experience. That might be. Yeah, there's fun. always kind of like a little bit of a falseness with, I think, any hero where they have like uh, a, a power that approaches limitlessness. You know, you 
you know, Superman is near and vulnerable. So, you know, the things that are, he is vulnerable to, like, uh, you know, kryptonite and magic and stuff like that, they feel, you know, a little weird or false or tacked on. You know, it just seems, it just seems weird. Like, I think it's more natural for a guy like, uh, for Batman or, or Daredevil or someone like that, where they basically will always be taking some damage. They're always somewhat vulnerable. And it's just about how much damage they can take and how much they can get worn down before they kind of hit their breaking point. And I think that's challenging with a guy like Superman because you don't really have that that much. I mean, it's more just about like he's fighting someone, he's fighting someone, and then suddenly they shoot him with a kryptonite beam. And it just feels like such like a, you know, goes from like zero to 60 as opposed to like, you know, like a Daredevil or Batman. It's a slow buildup. I think the same kind of thing with Flash. I think Flash is a difficult character because you know, depending on on the, the mechanics of the game and the comics that you look at, he can basically run faster than anybody can do anything else. So you almost kind of have to cheat that a little bit. You have to either like, you know, in our game, we gave him like the, the energy meter of like tapping into the speed force, but we had to, you know, have you drain after like 10 seconds. That's not how it is in the comic. So it's always kind of, yeah, I think it's kind of weird because, like I was just looking at, uh, what was it? There's the the promo for the new CW series, and it's like Flash and Adam. It's like a new team up, and it's all these characters, and they're all attacking like a bunch of bad guys. And Flash is running around, and it kind of felt to me like, well, why do those other guys need to be there? Like Flash can just run around and do it all himself, and they'll all be on the ground before anybody even notices the first punch being thrown. So, I think you have you end up a little lot of those kind of conceits and kind of like downplaying the actual abilities. Um, with people like Flash or Superman, where they're just kind of godlike. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, uh, and I was noticing that with like Quicksilver and every X Men, yep. and you know, Avengers movie and stuff. But um, so, another question for you: If you could have any license to kind of take on that you haven't got yet, yeah, what would you go for? Well, it was Silent Hill, and I got to do a Silent Hill. <laughs> oh, right on. And I, and it was the most unconventional Silent Hill, which was, which was very weird. I directed the last one. And, uh, so that was, that was my number. That was my go-to answer. That was always like, oh, if I could do any brand, it would be Silent Hill. And then we got to do Silent Hill, but it was, um, predetermined to be, you know, multiplayer, dungeon crawler, uh, online, isometric, like, like everything that kind of felt like a 180 from what the original series was. So, um, so that was interesting. Um, yeah, beyond that, um, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot of answers that spring to mind, but I kind of don't want to discuss them too much because a lot of them we have either pitched or we've actively pitched or we're planning to pitch. And so I don't want to, um, you know, kind of queer the possibility of of that by, you know, talking about stuff publicly. But I, I love a lot of the retro stuff. I mean, I would, you know, classic things like... Uh, um, you know, NES games or even more arcadey original things like Dig Dug, stuff like that, I think would be really fun to, to work on an update to. Um, that's the other thing that's nice about WayForward is the company as a whole, and you mentioned Voldy, he's the founder and Matt's the creative director. They're very open to uh, exploring um, possibilities for uh, their directors and really kind of everybody in the company. So, you know, it's the kind of situation, I think what it was on Boy and His Blob is I think Sean was, that one? no, it was Double Dragon. It was either Double Dragon or Boy and His Blob. One of them, Sean was just basically like, hey, I want to do this game. Let's talk to Majesco about it. And so we started talking to them about it. So that's kind of one of the neat things about our company is, you know, a lot of these possibilities pop up from just somebody inside who's not even one of the you know uh, owners or bosses of the company saying like oh can we pursue this and then you know other people say yeah that seems pretty cool we'll go after it and sometimes those actually turn into you know actual games that, yeah that is pretty awesome um and it, it seems like that's that's worked out on a few titles is that typically how these these things happen or is it like publishers come to you guys and go you know we've seen you guys do this in the past we know you can do it with this license too Oh yeah, I mean, I, I've um, I've seen you know both internally at Way Forward and also with uh, with the other places that I've done little bits of work with. Um, I mean, as much as Way Forward likes you know seeking out things and saying, oh, we would be perfect for this brand, um, the vast majority of it is uh, is publishers coming to you, or at least publishers having some semblance about what they want to do. Um, just because I've found over the years that. <clears throat> it's difficult to have a project um, get have legs at a publisher if there's not 
really kind of like a big push and money behind it. So if you, you know, you have something like Batman, Batman was done for the Brave and the Bold cartoon. Warner Brothers knew that they wanted to do a game based on it. So it was already, you know, it had had traction. So that game was going to happen with some developer somewhere. If you're, you know, hitting up a publisher and saying, hey, let's rejuvenate this brand. um, There's no money there from the beginning. So then they have to start kind of looking into, well, is there going to be um, an audience for this? And, and, you know, who's wanting this game? And, and if they are, what kind of game are they wanting? And, and even then, um, you know, it's unlikely that you'll get like a fantastic budget just because, um, you know, again, there wasn't like an external need for that game, like something that is, is um, coming from the ground up. Now the, you know, the exact opposite is kind of from, uh, you know, something like a Kickstarter, like on Kickstarter, you can see Ega doing it right now. And, Inafune doing it before where they're just like, hey, let's do these spiritual successors to our games. And then you've got all the fan base um, just, you know, hurling money at them to, to make these things. But I think when you go from the publishers, yeah, it's 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 much more common that uh, we sign games where they're coming to us knowing the opportunity rather than something that emanates from us originally. Uh, makes sense. Um, so one of the other things that, that you do on a lot of your games is you you write a lot of the dialogue and kind uh-huh. of a lot of the story and stuff like that. So um, can you tell me the difference kind of writing for a video game versus writing a comic book or a movie or something in another medium? Um, well, I don't actually have much experience in the other things, although you you are an accomplished comics writer, um, which I'm jealous of. <laughs> the... Uh, uh, I've pretty much, I, I went to college for um, creative writing and it was kind of funny because after I graduated college, I just did a bunch of stuff afterwards and ended up working for WayForward. But I came in as um, an animator um, just because I had started to get into pixel art. So over the course of those first few years at WayForward, I slowly kind of progressed back into the design side and the writing side. Um, but yeah, like I said, um, all the games at WayForward, it's it's very they're all distinctly kind of the um, style of the the individual directors on them. And um, my games have always been very story based, very, very dialogue based, just because that's something that fascinates me. Um, In college, we did a lot of, uh, we had like a program where it was radio plays. And I think that helped prepare me for games a lot more because rather than going into screenplays or something where you're just writing a document and then it goes into this like massive process that, you know, involves so many people and like so much time and stuff the radio plays were fascinating because we basically would write something about 30 pages or so and then we would cast the actors and then we would record it um very similar to just vo stuff and then uh and then we would edit it and so it was always very feasible to produce ourselves like basically that program taught me how to be a vo director and taught me how to do vo casting and taught me how to do audio editing and things like that um and that i think pl- applies really directly to the way that we do story in our games because even when you have something where you know you've got cut scenes or you've got cinematic sequences or something like that it all starts with the script and the plot and then it goes to the dialogue and then it goes to the vo and then you edit the vo and so you're basically kind of constructing this little radio play before you actually get to you know the other stuff um anyway it's like the full-on animatic or anything like that um so for me yeah i it's very audio driven. And I think also the other thing that I've noticed as I go along is I love the idea of passive VO as a storytelling mechanic. And I remember the first time that I was really blown away by that as I was playing Shenmue and there was some fight toward the end of Shenmue and it was like, uh, it was the main guy. And then you were like fighting with your buddy or something. And there were a bunch of guys coming at you. And as they were fighting, they were just like throwing quips back and forth. Um, and kind of insulting each other, like as they're they're taking on this this horde of guys, and I was like, just had my mind blown. It's like, oh my god, like I'm playing the game, but they're talking, but it's it's kind of a cutscene, but it's not a cutscene. And and so ever since then, I've I've really been a proponent of that, of the idea of just laying in VO and triggering it with triggers, um, and trying not to halt the gameplay as much as possible. Um, the like I said, the game that we just did with Amazon Game Studios, uh, which is called Till Morning's Light. There are some cinematics, and it was really fun to do the cinematics and oversee the storyboards and the production and, you know, make these little, like, Pixar-esque kind of, like, movie moments. But the most of the, uh, the, the storytelling is done through passive VO. And I think that's 
really fun to do is just um, think about how quickly a player is moving through an area, what they're thinking, like, are they getting frustrated right here? Are they getting excited right here? And then have the main character say little VO lines or, uh, you know, omniscient characters or bad guy characters say VO lines. And then just set those with like little triggers in game. Um, That's kind of the way that I do most of my, uh, writing in games at this point is just through like passive VO stuff. Um, and yeah, that's, it's a lot of fun. And it's also, it's really fun to get in the studio with the actors and, you know, tell them to make something a little more intense or tell them to like do it in a certain way, just based on what you have in your head. Um, I, I'd say of all the uh, game development process, that's probably my favorite portion of it is uh, getting together with the actors and casting it and hearing all your lines like come to life. And uh, it was really big. I remember on um, Batman Brave and the Bold because oh, yeah. <laughs> it seemed like you were writing like full episodes of a TV show almost because you were talking about the passive dialogue. That is basically throughout the whole game. You're hearing this stuff going through, right, to tell the story. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially that game. That's kind of, I think, where that trend um, for my stuff started was because again, it's like when we get a a licensed brand, the first thing we do is just dive into it. And I looked through, I think at that point, the first season of Brave and the Bold, Batman Brave and the Bold was out. Um, So I watched every episode. I like kept spreadsheets of like every weapon and every character and all this stuff and just really kind of learned the the tone of everything. But one of the things that I noticed is because it's a, a comedy driven show, the characters were just constantly talking. And that's something that that's kind of part of uh, what we wanted to do with the game is we didn't want to have really word heavy dialogue, heavy story sequences, and then just go to um, scenes where you're doing action and there's no story progression. So that was kind of uh, like the heart the kind of the pitch of the game was that the story would be constantly unfolding so much so that if you have somebody sitting on the couch, not playing the game, they would have kind of a similar experience to watching an episode so that we would do little things where it's like, Again, it's all trigger based, so it's like you're walking, and then you would see the uh, you know the bad guy, Catman or Catwoman, like in the rafters, and they would dash out, and Batman and Rob would talk about that, or they would you know theorize about what's going on as they're running, because you know in a platformer too, there's a lot of time where you're just running, like you're basically just running and beating guys up, and then running to beat more guys up. That's kind of the the standard for platformers. So there's a lot of opportunity to uh, to do that that passive dialogue, and the I mean, if anything, we probably over did it like i remember the original draft for uh um the batman game was like 400 pages <laughs> just kind of ridiculous most of the games that i write are like 100 pages of dialogue but again like you said it was just like wall to wall to wall dialogue um but it was fun and recording it with wb like we recorded over two weeks and actually to the point where i ended up writing a couple episodes of uh, teen titans go the tv show they have right now just because i kind of got friendly with the uh, the tv crew um from the batman game so that that's been really cool too is the idea that that my writing on a video game allowed me to in a very tiny way kind of transition and do some tv writing which is also awesome and i'm, I'm jealous of you for being able to do <laughs> that uh so uh, uh, have you looked into doing more tv writing stuff or are you just kind of sticking in with the with the game stuff for now um, I really like it. I'm actually, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of starting slowly starting production on my own cartoon pilot. Um, and I'm not really like promoting it too heavily right now. Cause we're kind of like just doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And once we have something neat to, to show off, then we'll promote it as we kind of go into the, the full production of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm really fascinated with cartoons. Um, like on Twitter, I have a lot more friends and a lot more of the people that I follow are, are in the animation industry rather than the uh, the game industry. And I think, again, that just kind of goes down to, you know, comes down to the fact that I the story stuff in games is, is what excites me the most. So, I mean, I do like, you know, I like the mechanics and I love designing boss battles and enemies and weapons and stuff like that. But, but I really like the story stuff. So, I mean, as far as like doing more, um, the Teen Titan stuff, I actually just um, did it like, in the past year um and the second episode hasn't aired yet so it's still pretty fresh i'd love to do more at this point there's not really that much time like between you know the stuff i'm doing from way forward and raising two kids and then also having um a couple hobby projects on the side um there's not really that much time but i I do i think i do want to explore it i wouldn't really know how so i think what i'll do is i'll basically just you know if i start having some time just start hitting up some uh, animation showrunners or, or TV shows and say, Hey, I wrote that thing once. Can I write something for you? Um, 
definitely something I'm interested in, but right now there's, there's not much time for it. Yeah, understandable. Um, one of the things going back to games and, and writing uh, that I wanted to talk to you about was character development and how you can kind of make characters, uh, make you actually care about them. There's a lot of games out there that kind of have just stale or flat characters. And uh, I wanted to talk to you about how, how does one do that? Uh, what, what tools do you use to, to create characters that are memorable? I'm kind of, I mean, I'm kind of learning that as I go along. Um, I, I tried the three games I think that I've tried to really kind of pull you in and, and, you know, feeling something about the characters or um, centipede uh, infestation, which we way forward did. And then our aliens game and, and now uh, till morning's light. Um, and it's just kind of experimenting with the idea of, you know, player attachment. Um, I think the more personality you give characters, the more players will, you know, fall in love with them. So the aliens game was interesting because we basically had, you know, I think it was like 19 or 20 Marines that you could play as with completely different personalities. So it's like, you know, they, they were like straight up like, you know, tropes and exaggerations, but every type of character that you could think of um, that could be a space Marine, we basically had represented, which is kind of what the James Cameron movie did. Um, and in that game, what we did is we basically just wanted to, we wrote the, uh, Cole Phillips, who is the lead designer on it, um, wrote the script in the char- in one character's voice, and then we rewrote the script another eighteen or nineteen times in every other character's voice. So every time you're changing character, it completely changes the dialogue and the tone and all that stuff. And you know, we would rewrite a script entirely for somebody that might be played for only five minutes until they die. But on Centipede, what I started doing is I started doing character arc uh development maps that would coincide with the game so basically in that game you had max and Maisie, who are the main characters and i did a chart where i would say okay they start you know max starts a little bit dumb and then by the end he's a little bit smarter he starts you know self-absorbed and then he gets a little more caring and you know i basically like kind of map the progression of of their personality traits um, literally against like the levels. So I, I, I forget how many levels there were in that game, but let's say there was like, you know, 30 or so I would have a spreadsheet that goes, you know, says his traits, maybe says a couple steps in the middle and then says the end one. And as I'm writing the scenes, I would look back at that and I would say like, Oh, okay. He's about, you know, 30% brave at this point. So I'll keep that in mind as I write him. Um, and that was really fun on that game to really have this kind of subtle, character evolution so you're never like hitting them over the head with it they're never just coming out and saying like i've learned my lesson i know i'm a good guy but just something that you keep in your mind it slowly kind of seeps into into the dialogue um uh, so that it feels very subtly like there's a shift and then we just took that like completely to the next level on uh until morning's light the game i just did where you have the main character erica and she has like a really strong um, very well developed, like evolution through the course of the game. So starting at the beginning of the game, uh, she's very meek and timid and shy and soft-spoken. And then toward the end, she just gets more and more confident until she's almost kind of a badass. Um, that was kind of one of the main things we wanted to focus on that game. So really developing her character, slowly evolving her, um, and then doing coinciding visuals. So it's actually like, as you're going through the game, she's getting more and more beat up and, you know, or she loses her jacket and her hair gets messed up and her shirt gets torn. So everything just looks like tougher about her. Um, yeah, that was kind of like, especially for that game, because Till Morning's Light is really just her journey. This one character named Erica, it's all based around her. So put a lot of effort into into that uh, slow evolution of her over the course of the game. Very cool. Um, so uh, we were talking a little bit, sort of delving into to horror a bit by talking mm-hmm. about that stuff and uh, Silent Hill and all that. Um, how do how do you create horror in a game? Because uh, in, in movies they they typically go for you know kind of unease in music and yeah. low lighting and and that sort of stuff. So how do you do that in a game? Because sometimes that's that's harder to sell in a game. It is, and I think um, it's it's also hard to hard to characterize because I don't think WayForward has really ever done a straight up horror game. Um, kind of a little, I guess a little bit with like lit lit our little like mini kind of puzzle game that was supposed to be just very creepy and very, you know, unsettling and immersive. Um, everything else we've done, I think is a little bit kind of off of that. So, I mean, blood rain had, you know, creepy elements, but it was very stylized and um, actiony and kind of over the top and like a, you know, Sean Velasco way. Aliens was more badass Marines, like the James Cameron thing. Um, and our Silent Hill game, normally you would think Silent Hill is like, you know, as subtle and 
and uh, you know under the skin as possible. But the thing with that game is it was multiplayer and it was an action heavy game and it was an RPG and it was a dungeon crawler. And we actually tried early on to go very subtle with kind of the horror aspects and it just didn't play at all. Like having nurses slowly shuffling toward you from, from the shadows um, in a Diablo perspective, just it, it just wasn't mechanically like enjoyable. So we ended up going much more kind of bombastic and big um, and explosive on that. Um, and then the the most recent one is Till Morning's Light. That one is um, like uh, it's immersive and creepy, but it's never like full on horror. So there's never like gore. There's never you know people getting eviscerated or or, or blood or guts or anything like that. Um, so it's more of a creepy thing. Uh, you know, it, it, we call it horror just because it fits nicely into the horror genre, but it's more of like a creepy kind of tone, like a, something like a Coraline is, um, if you've ever seen that movie, where it is scary and there's some genuine fear, but it's still kind of in the realm of, you know, being teenage or tweenage, something like that. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I don't think, Way, so I mean, in terms of all that, I don't think WayForward has really straight up done like a full on, horror horror game that i would consider um everything has always been kind of some kind of variant of it but as far as like how you do that yeah it's just it's an orchestration of everything i mean it's it's the audio it's the visuals it's it's putting all that stuff together and until morning's light jake kaufman who did the audio had this great system where he would have two versions of uh every song one that was more intense and one that was more subdued and he would he, there was a, a slider basically a dynamic slider that amped it up the closer you got to enemies so it had almost this kind of filmic feel of like oh it's going to get crazy now because the guy's coming at you and it's dump 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 like the extra instruments start kind of pumping up so that helped um really really you really just have to make sure that uh like oh oh sorry that's my wife. Um, no really just have to make sure that you don't um, try too hard to show off everything in, in the game. I mean, I know you make pretty art, but, you know, it's a horror game. It's really nice to have areas that are completely black or really inhibit your visibility. And if you don't have that, then the player just is going to feel too empowered. Um, so there's a lot of that playing with lights, playing with shadows. Um, and then I think uh, as much as possible, trying to not over empower the player. So putting them in situations where they feel a little bit underpowered or they don't quite have, you know, all the ammo that they need or all the weapons that they need. And then still having that kind of need to go forward anyways, that's a big element of horror for me is knowing that you have to go accomplish something, but not really being that confident that you're going to be able to pull it off. That's something that we always try and design around a lot in, in a lot of our horror stuff. So going from the polar opposite of that, um, humor in games, uh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of humor in brave and bold when I was working on that with you. Um, how, how do you communicate humor in games? Because that's also, if you, don't do it correctly. It's super awkward and terrible. Then <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> humor, I'd say, in games is probably one of the more difficult. Like, I think horror is actually easier to do than than. Oh, humor really? Is. Interesting. I, I do. I mean, because there's uh, horror to me. There are certain tropes that can kind of uh, more easily lend itself to that. But humor, um, man, it, it's just harder to communicate because it's so it's such a different medium than what games are kind of used to. I don't know. So uh, how do you communicate humor in games? For humor, for me, it's, it's, I think it's a little easier to do humor just because it's so obvious a goal. Like basically, if you get to the end of a joke, it's either funny or it's not. And that's kind of, you know, you're done with it at that point. Um, for me, drama and, and horror and stuff like that is, is a little more difficult because it's such an orchestration of everything and it can always be improved. You know, if you're going for like a creepy moment, you can always tweak this a little bit more, or tweak this dialogue here, or tweak this and like amp things up. It's kind of like, you're never really done with it with a joke. As long as you kind of, you know, get to the end of your joke and it's funny enough, then you're done and you can move on. Um, and the way that I did uh, humor and Batman <clears throat> was basically, I just kind of, I've gotten in the habit of, of writing everything in a couple passes in the script and what I started with Batman that I found worked really well is I would basically do a pass of the script writing the dialogue where it's just um, laying in the progression of everything. And I kind of call it like the, you know, the bad pass. Like it's like it's going to be a bad script when you finish it, 
the jokes aren't going to be funny or there's going to be parts where there are no jokes at all, but all you're doing is basically going through and getting to the end where it's like, okay, I've communicated everything I need to. It's like Batman needed to point out that he saw this clue and Robin needed to like say, I don't know about that, you know, whatever you need to communicate. That's what I'll usually do first is do that pass where you just are progressing through the story and just hitting the beats that you need to. Um, and then after that, then I'll go back in and do one or two what I call joke passes, which is just cramming it full of humor and just making things as funny as possible. Okay, you gotta go downstairs, dude. Um, and just keep going through that over and over in that process until it's as good as possible. But that's kind of the main thing for me is not trying to do it all out of the gate, um, really just laying in the structure first, knowing that the first draft is not going to be good um, and not getting frustrated with that. And just knowing like all I have to do is lay in the, the foundation of the plot and then I can come back and keep rewriting it and rewriting it and make it as good as possible. Like ultimately for me, rewriting is, is much more the writing process than, than what comes out first. It's almost kind of more like, you know, it's like sculpting. It's like, you just have to kind of get that initial form there and then you can always come back and retool it as much as you need to, to make it good. Yeah, no, agreed. Uh, I, I think with with me, uh, you were talking about the horror stuff and and horror and humor are almost kind of the same thing in in a couple of ways um, in mm -hmm. that usually it's the unexpected that either yeah. scares the crap out of you or or makes you laugh. Um, and so uh, for me, it was um, there were, you know, designers that were working on projects that we would work with or I was a designer on a project. And uh, sometimes people would make jokes and they're just they're not funny. And yeah. so, <laughs> and so you, they would, they would put them out and then it, it's just, that's another thing that's so painful yes. is bad humor, right? Like when yes. you, when you have jokes that people just, they, they don't get, or they can't get, or they, they understand it's so simple that they're like, Oh God, mm -hmm. it just, it kind of reduces it. So unless I feel that unless you can pull off humor, like if you are a funny person, uh, and you can kind of communicate it in games through through jokes, through auditory things, or through visual gags or whatever. Then I, I think it um, it's doable. But uh, yeah, it's just so much worse. Like if, <laughs> well, if you... and it's 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 such a personal thing too. I mean, you can't. It's it's telling somebody, oh, that's not a good joke, or uh, I I get I get it, but I don't like it. Like that's such a a very personal thing to do. Like that's, that's gotta be the worst thing in the world is to tell somebody like, I'm sorry, your, your joke is crap. You, you don't want to put that in the game. Right. No. Yeah. It's painful. But I mean, and, and even, um, with like horror, it's like, okay, I've got a dark corridor and it's constricted and there's low light and, uh, you know, I make a guy pop out, yeah. at, you know, at the right point. Like, I, I think you can orchestrate that a little bit easier, but like a joke, if someone's just not prepared to, to write something that's funny, then ugh. Anyway, yeah, I think jokes. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where you either can do it. I mean, you know, there's various levels to which, you know, various degrees to which you're able to do it. But it's definitely one of those things where either you can either do funny stuff or you or you can't. And you're writing a very similar to like I was talking to, you know, uh, some other developers the other day. And it's like rhythm games are such a crapshoot because some people just cannot do rhythm stuff at all. Um, and, and sometimes you'll have people where it's like, oh, no, this is a really simple sequence. It's like, you know, first level of like a DDR or something. It's like, nope, they completely can't do it. And so, yeah, it's weird. It's like rhythm and comedy are like two aspects of, of creativity that that really, yeah, some people just kind of can't get their head around. I think one of the things that was really fun about, um, that I like about humor too is, uh, and writing, is figuring out kind of the the tone and the audience that you're going for. So, you know, with something like Till Morning's Light, that's um, uh, a brand that that basically Amazon and, and WayForward created for this opportunity so we could kind of do whatever style we wanted. With something like Brett Batman, Brave and the Bold, it was a kid show. So it was really fun to write the humor in that, but write it at a level that was appropriate for the audience. So it was lots of like, you know, that, that show was fantastic. I mean, it was like, there was a lot of like, even though you have Batman and he's, I don't know, in his thirties or whatever that he is in the show, a lot of it, because it was geared towards kids was kind of like, ew, you've got a girlfriend and you're spending your time with her instead of me. Like a lot of it was kind of through the, the mind of like an eight year old boy sort of thing. So I think a lot of the humor in the game that we wrote was kind of similarly through the same lens, um, slightly juvenile. It's like this, it's this weird abstract world where you have all these people in their thirties or forties, but they're all talking like an eight year old would think of a 30 or 40 year old person talking and kind of the humor was the same in that game. 
Yeah. Well, and also there was a good, um, you know, using humor from not even just the dialogues. Well, it was partially dialogue, but there was a point in that game where you fall down a, a chasm and you go to the bottom and there's an elevator. Yeah. And uh, Blue Beetle's like, oh, okay, so we going up or down? Batman's like, well, we're on the bottom floor. And he's like, right, so up then. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he said like so, so up or down. Yeah. yeah. He, oh my God. He was, he was so fun to write for is that was Will Friedel. Um, yeah. One of the best actor writer experiences I've ever had on any of my games. And, and he just killed it in that game. Um, yeah. Blue Beetle was so fun to write for. He's just, just such an idiot, but so eager about everything too. Then, and, and, and that's the other thing is like, it, it's fun on a kid's game to play with, like younger styles of humor that you might not in an older game. So I remember one of my favorite things is when they're flying around um, in one of the stages, Blue Beetle talks about like, oh, we should sell these things to kids. We make like a million bucks and Batman just wants to stay focused on the missions. I was like, ah, oh, not right now. And uh, Blue Beetle says something like, come on, we'll make like a million bucks. Don't you want to be rich? And, you know, the joke of is, of course, he's Bruce Wayne, who is either a millionaire or a billionaire, depending on, you know, the, the era of the comics. Um, and that's something that little kids would say, like, oh, I get it. It's funny. You know, that might not be something that I would put in like an M-rated game because it's very hammy. Um, but it was it was fun to do that kind of like very, very goofy, very childish humor for, for a game like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um so, sir, we are running close yep. to the hour here. Uh, you've got the kids. I've got a kid who is also <laughs> crying in the background. So uh, I'm going to go handle that. But seriously, I appreciate your time and coming on the show and uh, talking with us. Is there anything else you want to plug or talk about uh, prior to the show ending? Yeah. Um, like I said, the last game I completed for Amazon Game Studios is Till Morning's Light, um, and it's coming out very soon. So um, we're doing all the promotion stuff and the interviews for it right now. So that's going to come out on uh, iOS and Fire Phone and Fire Tablet devices. Um, really cool, weird little horror adventure, um, uh, puzzler, action, rhythm game, kind of everything we've talked about. Um, that's coming out soon, Till Morning's Light. And then also kind of the most prominent way forward thing that's out right now is uh, it's the third Shantae game. Shantae and the Pirate's Curse is available on a bunch of stuff. So yeah, definitely uh, if you're a fan of Way Forward or um, if you're curious about cool platformers or, or creepy, check those games out. Awesome, sir. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And everybody else, if you're interested in hearing more Game Devastation, please check out uh, Podbean uh game devastation you can check it out on uh, patreon which is uh patreon.com backslash or you can find it on itunes at game devastation uh thanks again for for joining us adam and everybody else thank you for checking out the show adios